If you have a copy of God's Word, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read again the passage from this morning, and we will zoom in on our meditation tonight. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, this morning we have two main points that we looked at. Point one, preserve unity in the church by staying focused on its primary mission. That's verses one to four. And then in point two, preserve unity in the church by staying focused on Christ, the God-man. That's verses five to 11. Again, just to review, what is the church's mission? Well, in Philippians two, verse two, Paul desired to see the church complete his joy, hit the spot, make him an even happier man. But how were they to do this? Well, he says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Well, what exactly did Paul mean? Did he mean that we all have to dress alike, eat alike, vote alike, play all the same sports alike? Well, no, he wasn't talking about uniformity but he was talking about a like-mindedness. We both marched to the same drumbeat. Well, what are we to be like-minded about? Well, turn back to Philippians 1 again. In Philippians 1, Paul already alluded to this one heart, one mind, one spiritness, starting in verse 27. Philippians 1, verse 27. He says, "'Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ.'" so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So what is the mission of the church? What are we to be one mind, one heart, one spirit about? Well, it's, it's preaching and protecting the gospel. 
It's helping one another live lives that commend the gospel. That's what the church covenant exists for. The statement of faith helps us guard the gospel by re-looking at what the Bible says about certain matters of salvation, the Bible, and God. But the church covenant is our kind of weekly reminder, and especially when we take the Lord's Supper, that we are to help each other follow Jesus as well. We are to help each other, watch each other's backs, pray for one another that our lives commend the gospel so that we each, every single one of us in here, from Susan to Jeff to me to Julie to Brad to Julie, live lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A church that contends for the faith together will be a church that commends the gospel together. But a church that contends or fights against one another, devours one another, will only bring reproach on the gospel. Uh, A church that is divided, a church that is at odds with each other, is a church that actually veils the gospel. It's actually not very good news. Because when the gospel takes root in the lives of a church, it unifies the church. It heals the church. It creates spiritual life in the church. But a church that fights against itself will eventually devour itself. You see, pride, as we learned this morning, is the heartbeat of Satan. He's the enemy of humility. And pride is what God opposes. Again, C.J. Mahaney's quote from this morning is fitting. Show me a church where there's division, where there's quarreling, and I'll show you a church where there's pride. So CCBC, let's stand firm together for the gospel. And let's strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then we looked also at this section in verses 5 to 11 on the incarnation. As I mentioned earlier, it's the hypostatic union, that mysterious joining of the two natures, human and divine, in the one person, Jesus Christ. And we learned this morning that from Philippians 2, 5 to 11, it was most likely a hymn that the early Christians would sing about the incarnation. And it really had a twofold purpose. Why does Paul bring this up? Why does Paul bring up the incarnation? Why does he bring up a hymn in the middle of a missionary letter? Well, we saw that he did that for really two purposes. One, he was elevating Christ as our perfect example of humility to imitate. And that was verses 5 to 8. But he was also elevating Christ in verses 9 to 11 as the perfect object of our highest worship. Well, tonight, I want us to focus closer on one point that I made towards the end of the sermon of what humility looks like. It should come up on the screen. Humility is voluntarily entering into someone's life amidst their sin, suffering, and need to do them good, even if it doesn't bring you any immediate benefit. Let me say that again. Humility 
is voluntarily, that means you're not being forced to do it, you are willfully and intentionally doing this, entering into someone's life, so you're pursuing, you're taking the initiative, amidst their sin, suffering, and need to do them good, even if it doesn't bring you any immediate benefit. Now remember what we learned this morning about the incarnation. Christ did not exploit his rights as deity that he already possessed. Uh, He did not take advantage of the fact that he was divine. He didn't keep it all to himself. God, God the Son could have easily stayed in glory. So why did he come to earth? God the Son came to us in that he humbly moved towards sinners to do what most benefited us. As 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Again, we need to remind ourselves, who was lost? Us. We didn't find Jesus any more than a dead man found his car keys. Who was lost? We are. We are the ones who needed saving. What did Jesus say in Luke 19.10? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But Christ was not forced to come to earth. I don't know if you knew that, but you should. Christ was not forced to come to earth. You don't have the Father in heaven gambling with the Son. You don't have the Father in heaven coercing the Son, manipulating the Son, guilting the Son to come to earth. No, the triune God always operates in creation and salvation in 100% unity. Though one God, in essence, they each, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have distinct but harmonious roles. And Christ, the God-man, delighted in his Father's will. He wanted to glorify his Father's name. And the Father delighted in glorifying his Son's name. You see, the Father sent the Son on a rescue mission, but the Son willingly laid down his life for the sheep that the Father gave him. No one took Jesus's life from him. Remember John chapter 10, verses 14 to 18? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, but I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Earlier today, we even heard from Matthew 20, verse 28, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, what did he teach his disciples? In Matthew 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, if humility, according to Heaven's Dictionary, is the display of selfless, sacrificial love, in obedience to God, to bless others, like Christ, how does this type of humility show up in our lives? As followers of Jesus, did you know we are called to be like God? Did you know that? We are called to mimic, copycat, the selfless and sacrificial giving love that God has shown towards us, sinners who don't deserve it. I want you to see this in two passages tonight as we drill down to our application. Go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Our brother Jansen's been recently in Ephesians. This might be a a freshness to one of his sermons. In Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. Ephesians 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, as a result of everything you just heard, be imitators of who? Let's say it together. Be imitators of? As beloved children. And walk in love. Oh, how is love demonstrated? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. One more I'll show you is in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John's towards the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3. Look with me starting in verse 16. 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18. By this we know love. In other words, John's saying you want to know what love is, you want to know what it sounds like, you want to know what it feels like, you want to know what it looks like. He's about to tell us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, remember the definition of humility? Entering into someone's life of sin, suffering, and need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Beloved, that's why the very impulse to serve others is at the heart of deity. You've seen this. Humility is the single mom who gets the second job in order to put her kids through college. It's the five-star athlete who stays in the weight room longer and stays after practice later in order to help his less talented teammates get better. It's the straight-A student. wasn't me. It's the straight-A student who offers to tutor a classmate struggling to pass their exams and does so for free. It's the young millennial who, instead of staying up late on Saturday night and sleeping in on Sunday mornings, gets up early to pick up the homeless man to go to church. It's the young dad who turns off the sports channel and gets down on the floor and learns about dolls, ponytails, and new dresses that his daughter loves wearing. It's the young mom doing another load of laundry, another load of dishes, all while shopping for groceries and working endlessly all week and no one telling her thank you. It's the granddad who is wearing several hats and caring for his grandkids, knowing that the kid's father and mother have dropped the ball in their parenting. It's the elderly woman who cares for her aging husband who is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Each day she does the same thing over and over again, fixes him breakfast, helps him bathe, helps him to the restroom, and cleans up after him when he leaves things a mess. She looks at the pictures of when they were young and he was strong and continues serving him, being faithful to her vows she made many years ago. It's the seasoned Sunday school teacher who intentionally sits in a class being taught by a less talented and less experienced teacher and happily sits and learns under them. It's a highly gifted pastor who shares his pulpit with others so that his congregation can benefit from other men's teaching instead of his own. Beloved, those are examples of humility. I remember working in the cleaning company. A few years in, I realized that it was hard to motivate people making just barely over minimum wage to clean toilets every night of the week. And so as a young man and my father, we were in the conference room trying to figure out, Dad, how can we get these people to do this with some type of cheerfulness, some type of attitude that says, I'll do it my all and not quit three weeks after I hire you. I mean, how can I keep you? We came up with all sorts of things to motivate people. I remember one time walking to a medical facility, and I had a married couple from the Philippines, Carino and Teresita Picard. They were in their late 50s or so, and uh, they would sometimes, the only time they would take off for work is when they would go back to the Philippines to help out with a church that they were a part of before they moved to the States. I remember one night pulling up in my truck, opening up the janitor closet in the building, 
and getting everything situated, and I, I heard a knock at the door, and it was Mrs. Picard. And I said, hey, Mrs. Picard. She said, oh, Brother Blake. That's what she always called me, Brother Blake. Brother Blake, oh, why are you here? I said, well, I'm making sure you've got chemicals. Oh, yes, we've got plenty of chemicals. I said, well, guys, you're doing a good job. I'm about to head out. And she said, wait, 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 Brother Blake. Hold on a second. Come here. And she could say that to me because I was like half her age and, you know. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, what is this? What is this reward chart? Well, I came up with this basically like elementary kind of reward chart where we would give them stickers to, a, to let them know that they're on the way to like a gift card to Starbucks or something. It was kind of like an added incentive to making sure the closet was clean and the customers were happy. And I said, well, Mrs. Picard, we're doing that to reward those who are keeping their closets tidy and they're coming in uniform and they're at work every day. She says, Brother Blake, I don't need your reward chart. I said, okay. She said, my heavenly father already sees what I'm doing and he will reward me one day. Thank you, Brother Blake, but I don't need your reward chart. You see, guys, that's humility. It's serving and getting the job done knowing that, well, your heavenly father sees what you're doing. He sees what you're doing when you're laying down on the floor playing with kids to serve in child care. He sees what you're doing when you're scrubbing those toilets and no one sees you except King Jesus. He knows what you're doing when you're in the counseling room for the 25th time with the same couple and you're not seeing any traction. He sees. He knows. And it's usually in those moments when no one's watching that he's cultivating humility. Brothers and sisters, humility is a love for God and a love for people. And humility really gets put to the test when God puts people in our lives that are quite difficult to love, isn't it? Because it's easy to love people who love you back. It's easy to give gifts to people knowing that they'll probably do the same for you. But Christ-like humility has no strings attached. It's voluntarily moving towards others in their time of sin, suffering, and need to do them good, even if you don't get any immediate benefit from it. You see, the emptying of Christ was for our benefit. The sufferings of Christ were for our benefit. The obedience of Christ was for our benefit. The death of Christ was for our benefit. Beloved, Christ's humiliation for sinners is the demonstration of real love. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, says love that is genuine will not respond to a fellow believer's joy with envy or bitterness, but will enter wholeheartedly into that same joy. Similarly, love that is genuine will bring us to identify so intimately with our brothers and sisters in Christ that their sorrows become ours. So how can I practically, how can you practically begin to walk in this type of humility, imitating our Lord? Just one, two, right here. Listen and look. Listen and look. Humility always begins with listening. Listening to God 
through his word, calling upon him in prayer. But it's also listening to people's needs. Did not Jesus say from out of the mouth the what? The heart speaks. Take time to ask someone real, intentional, thoughtful questions. But when you ask them questions, don't simply try to fix their problem. Instead, immediately listen, knowing that you're not their savior. Jesus has already got that taken care of. Instead, learn to be present. Learn how to sympathize with what's going on in their life. Learn to understand or seek to understand what they're actually going through before you draw hasty conclusions. That's the mark of humility. But also look, pay attention, beloved, to the providential opportunities that God puts right before you. See, none of us in this room lack opportunities to serve others. We just simply lack the right attitude to serve others. Christ became what we are so that we might become what he is. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight and we relish again in the incarnation that Christ so identified with us that he paid our debt in full, he suffered on our behalf, and he did that because you love us and you desire to cultivate humility in us. Father, make us a humble church. Make me a humble pastor. Lord, cause us to be humble to the people that are closest to us in our life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.